Welcome to episode five. I hope you are enjoying listening into this season's series of podcasts. From West Hollywood to rail travel, from family travel to super stylish summer holiday wardrobes. This episode takes us to forever and considered pieces of jewellery as we talk to the brilliant Pippa Small and Jessica Wirch of Kimai. I'm thrilled to have these two trailblazing women with me to chat. Welcome to you both. Hello. <laughs> um, okay, introduce myself. So um, I'm Pippa Small. I, um, I've been making jewellery, designing jewellery now for, I think, really nearly, I don't know, 25, maybe even longer <laughs> years. Um, and um, I have a shop on Westmont Grove and I'm producing all over the world with various artisans. And um, yes, very happy to be here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Jess. I'm the co-founder of Kimai. We're a labyrinth diamond and recycled gold fine jewelry brand on a mission to really bring some transparency, but also modern touch and innovation to the fine jewelry industry. So thank you for having me. Excited to dig in. What sparked your interest in jewelry in the first place? Jessica, I think you grew up in Antwerp and your family was in the diamond trade. Is that, that's from your side. Yeah, that's exactly it. So basically I started Kimai with my co-founder, Sydney, who's also my best friend. And we actually both grew up in Antwerp in Belgium. And basically for those who aren't aware, but Antwerp is a diamond center of the world. So that's where most of the diamond trade happened. Uh, and so we grew up with parents in the diamond industry, jewelry industry, where with most of our environment and people we know being surrounded by diamonds and jewelry our entire life. So how we basically see jewelry, uh, we always linked it to a very special moment in time or a very, or a special person, uh, cause it has that very important sentimental value to, to us, like where you can carry it over from one generation to another, where you really celebrate different moments in life with those different pieces. And that's basically how we were always really passionate about that market and about those pieces and about that industry. But we just felt that we were growing apart from it. Basically, we moved to London 10 years ago. Uh, and it's really at that point that personally we started to become much more conscious of our impact, much more conscious of our purchasing decisions. And we're seeing all kinds of industries evolving with us in the way they talk to their customers, but also the way they, they transparently um, explain their supply chain. And looking back at the diamond and fine jewelry industry, again, an industry that we loved so much, we couldn't, we felt really disconnected. We couldn't find any, simple answer about the origins of the stones, even knowing the diamond trader directly, we couldn't understand anything about the supply chain. And on top of it, we felt that quality and design often came at a crazy price point with a very outdated and traditional industry. While today we're much closer to the brand we're buying from and are kind of like connecting with them uh, in a different way than our parents and great grandparents were. Uh, but the industry was still talking to us in the exact same way. So that's basically how we started Kimai. That's wonderful. And Pippa, what about you? Wow, that's so interesting. Um, I think mine is coming from kind of 
quite the opposite direction, which was coming from um, a family who were, were not involved in jewellery. Um, my mother was a painter, but um, I grew up, I suppose like so many children, grew up kind of fascinated with stones. I mean, pebbles, pebbles gathered on the beach, in the garden, in the driveway. Stones were, I suppose many children have this, but stones were somehow to me um, the kind of greatest treasures. And they were rocks that I'd find that I'd carry in my pocket. And I suppose I came to jewelry partly because I just needed a way to carry these rocks around with me. Um, so I wasn't losing them everywhere. But I was sort of a, a fascinated by jewelry, fascinated by rocks, fascinated by this kind of idea of stones. Um, even in childhood, that sort of really early animistic belief that, you know, stones had this power and, and this idea that they came from the earth, that they came through this incredible journey through, you know, the chemistry, the winds, the rain, the heat, the cold, the, all these kind of incredible energies and elements that go into making a stone. I think I just had that sense of that in a rock, you know, this kind of beautiful, still, silent, uh, unchanging material that I just found fascinating. So as a child, I was pocket full of stones, but later I went on to study anthropology and got quite involved in human rights, um, ended up doing a master's in um, Borneo and Sarawak. And whilst there, I think it was sort of quite an interesting turning point because whilst I was um, looking into areas of um, deforestation and the impacts of large-scale development on smaller, more isolated communities and things, I was also seeing that in every community, people were making things and they were making things that quite often needed uh, a market, that they weren't quite reaching a market that had a a sense of, of appreciation for what they were making. And it was definitely the sort of slight disconnect between what they were making and what people in the market areas wanted to buy. So I could see that there was this potential, that there were these resources, these skills, but a kind of slight um, mismatch. So I suppose coming to my journey to jewellery was very roundabout, but it came from human rights. It came from working um, in areas to do with environment and uh, seeing communities who are really impacted by mining firsthand. So when I did start to make jewellery, which sort of started off with trying to help communities sell their pieces in, other, in England, and then I started to work more with the communities directly to kind of find a way to um, collaborate with what they were creating and to help bridge a kind of more contemporary feel with our craft in order to find the market. But I suppose that journey, which was very roundabout, <laughs> um, led me to kind of entering the, the, the industry really through a different door, which was um, more about having a sense of how the impacts were affecting people through mining and how there were alternatives. But at the time, 25 years ago, they weren't very developed. <laughs> that's something that's kind of slowly um, making its way, which is a, a beautiful thing, but we're not there yet. So looking at um, fair trade, fair mind, and then working in many communities where there are conflicts and um, difficulties that make things quite hard for people who are quite vulnerable and, and really coming at it from an angle of uh, the kind of sustainability of 
jobs of preserving traditional skills, traditional knowledge, heritage, craft. That's kind of the area I've come into jewelry. So, yeah, that's my very wiggling journey. (laughs) That's incredible. I mean, both of you, ethics and sustainability and all that, such an integral part of the business, which I want to talk much more about in a little bit. Um, That's incredible. Both of your journeys are, are fascinating. Before I talk about, you know, that part of it, how would you describe your brand's aesthetic? Um, I think for us, the main goal was really in Antwerp, basically, we were able to get the quality of those high-end jewelers, but the prices of those uh, more digital, younger brands that have launched over the past few years. And what we wanted to bring with Kimai is really that high-end quality, those everyday pieces uh, that you can wear uh, while going to work, while going like basically on in your everyday life, but with a twist. Because the thinking was that most digital brands today that are trying to do things from a sustainable perspective and that are using diamonds um, are really trading off on design. It's often very simplistic uh, pieces that you could find at any other jeweler. Uh, and then if you have, if you look at those new Bond Street jewelers, it's often amazing pieces, quite out of reach, even in the way, um, in the way you can wear them. Like it's often like kind of, you'll see them on the red carpet, etc. So for us, what we wanted to bring is really like jewelry is part of you. And we want people to really, like, for those pieces to really become part of the people wearing it, uh, but still something unique, different, uh, and that feels very special. So, so yeah, so I would say like everyday pieces with a twist um, and much more modern touch. Beautiful. I guess also a kind of nice counter to that, um, being very handmade, very artisanal. Um, I think our pieces are really about stories and it's about kind of many voices and many hands that go into the, to the making and the concept of the pieces. They're very... I'd say very simple, very raw, very natural, quite emotional, quite feminine. Um, and I suppose my my inspirations are, are slightly sort of um, ancient pieces, unearthed pieces, natural forms. So it's it's quite um, earthy, I would say. Um, and very much about the people and places where they're made. I often feel that it's it's kind of in a sense, the pieces of jewellery made in, in whether it's Afghanistan or by Syrian refugees, it's, it's sort of, in a sense, their voice coming out into the world through their pieces that they make. I love the idea of the jewellery having its own personality and speaking to you as well as its own journey. Do, you, do either of you have a favourite piece of jewellery, whether it's from your own collection or something shop from the shoppable collection? Uh, I think definitely the pieces that I wear daily, um, but often I love mix and matching and switching things around. That being said, as I said before, like jewelry always comes with a special sentimental value linked to it. So for example, when I was younger, I received from my dad, like a heart shaped necklace, like a heart shaped diamond, like a tiny one with like diamonds around it. And I turned it around into an earring. Uh, so I wear it every day. And even though it's not the same, sorry, <laughs> even though it's not the same design anymore, it still has that special meaning to, uh, to me because it really reminds me of that 
special gift I've received. And I brought that Kimai touch to it. But then I really, I'm a big fan of like stacking up earrings and mix and matching it. And same with necklaces, like wearing three different necklaces now as we speak that are stacked up. And yeah, it feels a bit messy, but like in my own way. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a layerer of jewelry. It's kind of, I don't know, I'm very much a believer in, in sort of amuletic properties of, of um, pieces of jewellery. And one of the pieces I have on, which I've been wearing for years and years, is a Navratna, which is a, an ancient um, Indian, but actually Pan-Asian. You find it everywhere from, from Myanmar and Indonesia to Pakistan, Tibet. It's Navratna, meaning the nine gems in Sanskrit. Nav is nine and Ratna is gem. And it's a kind of uh, an amulet of nine precious stones that are set out in a particular order. And the idea is you wear them so that the stone touches the skin. And the belief is all around a kind of very ancient um, Vedic tradition of stones and planets having a, a relationship and a kind of correlation. And in many parts of the world, um, when you're born, the, the stars are charted as to your particular fate and destiny <laughs> in the heavens. And the idea of wearing the Navratna is that it kind of balances up whatever, uh, if you have too much of uh, the power of Mercury in your charts or you have too little sun, it, it will sort of balance and even out and protect and draw good, keep away bad. <laughs> So they're like a kind of small insurance policy, I think. But it's it's usually the nine is um, everything: ruby, emerald, sapphire, pearl, diamond, yellow sapphire, chrysoberyl, and hesonite. So there are these particular nine gems that are worn, and I just love this idea of it. It's something that's very, very ancient, and when you dig down into it, it's very complex and, and really a sort of little microcosm of the entire universe because its sort of meaning goes through into sound and color and day of the week and food and it kind of spreads through everything so it's it's a kind of fascinating journey just through this one piece of jewelry so that's my navratna i i love that which leads me really nicely to my next question is that the talismanic quality of jewelry um and you know all those reasonings and the protectiveness i guess that comes with all these stones do you think jewelry offers the wearer a protective shield i will answer that because <laughs> I guess I have to say I do believe that. Um, I'm not. I don't. I don't know. It's complicated because I'm not really a kind of new age person. I have to say. I'm sure people would disagree, but I. I don't feel to be new age, <laughs> and I'm not really kind of a follower of, you know, rose quartz will bring love. And um, I, I do believe, however, that instinctively, and this kind of goes back to a kind of Paleolithic. You know, I was recently um, last summer visiting the caves in Lascaux in southwest France, and these are twenty-eight to thirty thousand-year-old caves where, you know, our far, far distant relatives were living as hunter-gatherers. And although the paintings in these caves are the most exquisite thing I have ever seen, the only tools really that um, man and woman at that time had developed were um, the needle, which I thought was very interesting because I didn't know that, and jewellery. I mean, basically, jewellery has been with us our entire journey of, of, of Homo sapien. We've made pieces of jewellery out of horn, bone, stone, shell, 
for our entire history. And it's not just, it's completely universal. Everywhere in the world, you will find people adorn themselves. So I think there's, you know, there's definitely something to understand in that because we obviously have always felt the need, not necessarily to adorn ourselves for um, the kind of showing our status of wealth or power or, I don't think it's always been that. It's also been around much more subtle things to do with, perhaps to do with this, you know, subconscious knowledge that a stone comes from deep in the earth. And that's something that connects us to our, our planet in a way that's, that's quite primeval. Um, I think it's also a sense of, of beauty, which is not to be underestimated. Beauty has a huge role. It's part of what makes us human. I think, you know, this idea that we put on something that enhances us, that makes us feel strong or courageous or, comforted or safe or whatever the response might be through a stone or a piece of jewelry. But I do think we've always had this this sort of idea of it as a shield. I mean, of course, there's the, the personal element to do, um, as you said, about memory and relationships and places and people. But it's also, I think, something much more subliminal, much more ancient and much more rooted in our our history on Earth, which is just this sense of connection, perhaps, to the environment around us something as simple as that so yes i do believe they protect us <laughs> or maybe we put that power in them i don't know but um i think so i love that like i'm not as philosophical unfortunately but i'm very inspired but i think i definitely agree i think i have a kind of like fun like not fun story but basically a few a few months ago I discovered, like, my cousin sent us a video where he interviewed my grandma uh, in 1995 about the Second World War and basically how they had to, uh, they had to, like, leave Belgium at the time to, to go and hit in uh, France somewhere. And what she was saying is, um, is that whenever she left, her dad gave her a piece, of, like, a necklace. And he said, whenever, like, on your way, if you need any help, you'll always have that as a security. And so how I see jewelry as well is definitely that kind of, like, safe uh, safe piece that always kind, as I said before, like, really reminds you of those special moments and special people in time, but also something that is easy to travel with. Uh, and that you really can carry over, not just from one generation to another, but really take with you because it's it's small. You can carry it in your bag or con like compared to like art, etc. It's really the only kind of like safe travel um, piece that you can take with you and always have that kind of like memory that's linked to it. I don't know if that makes sense. But it was like whenever she mentioned it, it was so special because she was like, whatever happened, I'll always have this to remind me of my parents. And it's the only thing that I can carry with me anywhere I go and kind of hid it uh, if there's anything coming up. So I definitely see it as like something that, um, yeah. I think it's really interesting that you talk about the memory and how valuable a piece is that you can take with you over a piece of art. And of course, Pippa, you spoke about, you know, the protectiveness of particular stones. There are so many who consider jewelry simply as a commodity. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's, you know, jewellery, I think, as you said, Jessica, I mean, jewellery has always had that kind of um, 
throughout every culture in the world. I mean, a, a married woman with her gold bangles or um, whether it's silver, it's always been this, even in marriage, it's always been the property of a woman that if times were difficult or if her children needed, those could be melted down and sold. Or, um, And I think that, that sort of instinct we have about jewellery as, as investment stroke insurance has is, is always been a part of um, I mean, I always find it difficult when we have customers who say, you know, is this a, a good investment? And you think, well, you know, it's for now, it's for loving and for wearing. And But yes, I mean, intrinsically, we all know, and certainly in this um, last few months, we've seen how gold has shot up again. I mean, and through COVID, it shot up. It, we can see gold has continued and always has and always will have this value um, that is, is – uh, very very straightforward and simple transaction it has a sort of grand price and that's that so i think yes it's absolutely a, a kind of a wonderful investment but i agree with jessica that above and beyond that i mean the pieces occasionally i have a client who comes in and she has a great grandmother's ring or an ounce ring that you know perhaps the design doesn't feel very relevant to her doesn't sort of feel compatible to her life and we take the stones and melt the gold and redesign it. And I think there's just something so beautiful about that sense, like your neck, your grandmother's necklaces that are, that seem to sum up to me everything that jewelry is. It's, it's that, that way that I don't think any other luxury item, I don't know. I'm sure people feel that way about shoes or handbags, but I just can't. <laughs> but I think there's something about jewelry. I definitely, I think it's different because I think jewelry is the only thing that really will never can you know, get old or you can always repolish it, refix it and really bring it back to life as a completely kind of like looks like a new piece. I think with bags, shoes, etc., it will kind of like, yeah, at one point there's an end to the life of it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Definitely. And it, it is amazing to think, of, like, if I think of my mother's hands, you know, I, I see the rings on her hands and somehow hands are such a, I suppose, like people's eyes, hands are something we see so much of um, a person, you know, whether you speak with your hands or certainly for a child, you know, the mother's hands are always there and present and I can see her hands. And I, I know, you know, the rings and how they sat on her fingers and when she took them off, or when she, you know, it was, to me, they were so a part of her. She didn't have much jewellery, I must say, but she had one necklace that she used to wear, which was this big gold crescent moon. And it had a little child that sat on the moon with little emerald, oh, sapphire eyes. I remember it so well. And this necklace used to catch in our hair and on our nostrils. And <laughs> it was kind of catching on things. But to me, it was her. It just, this piece was kind of, I couldn't, see the necklace without thinking of her or see her without thinking of her necklace. They're just, it's, it's so interesting how these, this relationship, this material relationship between a thing and a person and the emotional value we put on the thing gets so, it's so imbued in a, in a piece of jewelry far more than anything else. It's very interesting the way we do that. For both of you, 18 karat gold is the lowest unit measure of gold. Is that correct? Yes. What's the reasoning behind this? There's something in the softness of it and the purity of it and the warmth and the feel. And I think what I particularly love is the way it wears and molds with you. There's one design of ring we have called a Tibetan, and it's quite a high ring and it has a lot of gold on the sides. It's always 22. But 
I, I love looking at mine because it will dent and the band itself is completely an odd shape, which I suppose my finger is the odd shape, but it's molded around now. And I just love that, you know, every experience of my life, as it were, is kind of stamped into this ring now. It just has this, you know, the surface is still beautiful. The, the texture is lovely, but it just feels like it's, it's kind of been on the journey with me. Whereas if I think of a kind of uh, lower carrot, it feels hard to me and un, um, I don't know what the word is, unmalleable and you know, perhaps it will not change. But I think that change is part of the relationship with a piece of jewellery and rather beautiful. So I love that it marks and moves and moulds to you. Yeah, I agree. I think it's soft, but not too soft in order to be able to uh, to make the jewelry we we are imagining, and on top of it, whenever uh, we look at again all those young brands launching, a lot of them call themselves fine jewelry, but use plated gold or fourteen carat gold. And I think there's a big lack of education on the market where people see the word gold and just think it's all the same, so they don't really know what they're buying into. But actually for us, fine jewelry is 18 karat gold. It's more precious and it's always been the standard. Uh, so definitely it's, it comes at a higher cost. But for us, that's what's going to, again, last a lifetime and where uh, the preciousness comes with as well. I want to talk a bit about traceability and sustainability, which, have, which we mentioned before is such a big part of it. How can someone know if their stones are ethically sourced and how do you track that journey and, you know, how can, how can a consumer know this? So, yeah, I think, Pipa, you have more kind of, yeah, I'd love to hear from your experience because I think for us it's really different because we use Labgrin Diamond for that exact reason because uh, it's very hard to track. And I think knowing the industry, again, from a diamond perspective, there's so many middlemen in the process that it's very, very hard to know where the diamonds come from. And we've seen it as well with like uh, the war in Ukraine, where a lot of people basically started saying, we'll stop buying diamonds from Russia because 30% of the world diamond comes from Russian government owned company. Um, but basically as soon as those diamond leaves to India, they become like Indian diamond, etc. So I think there's many loopholes in that market on our end, at least. Uh, and that's why we took the decision to use only lab green diamond, which today we see it as the best kind of option for, from a diamond perspective to, to know where the diamonds come from and to bring the traceability with. But Pipa, I would love to hear your thoughts on how you do with your stones. It's definitely super a big topic and super interesting. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> it's this is a, a very kind of a difficult area because we have, I think, in the industry, some seen some move for gold. I've been to, I think, three or four gold mines um, from East Africa to South America. Um, in different parts of Asia. And, you know, it's fantastic to see what certification of fair mind or fair trade has brought to the gold mines and to the community around. At the moment, we're just starting to work with um, gold panners in Colombia. So it's kind of taking it to, in a way, the kind of the perfect solution, which is, you know, no chemicals at all, no mechanization at all, but directly from uh, panner to refinery and that's kind of beautiful to see a, a means of extraction where there's no environmental damage at all 
However, <laughs> with the gems, it's it's a different story. It's way more complicated. And I agree. I think you know, lab-grown diamonds are definitely the way um, we tend to use old diamonds at the moment. If we use, we don't use many diamonds, but if we do, we tend to use old ones. Um, I, I love that years ago, I remember someone saying we were kind of using recycled diamonds and it did make it sound like there was this sort of huge landfill of diamonds that were, you know, causing terrible damage somewhere. <laughs> but thankfully we were dragging them back out and reusing them. But I mean, basically, you know, as jewelry has always, we've always remelted the gold and it goes back into the gold market and stones have always been reused, recut or reused, but nothing ever goes to waste, of course. But, um, when it comes to stones, colored gems, it, it is definitely more difficult and more complicated. And India, where I've worked for, for many, many years, is a very hard place, Jaipur, to, to, to be able to trace anything because, you know, you buy tiger's eye or moonstone or, you know, we use so many different stones and gems and minerals and of high value and of not high value. And most of those don't have um, any traceability at all. The person I buy from as it's gone through so many hands will say it's it's African or um, South American but you know beyond that they have no idea however there are a few places um, that I've been working where we know very clearly where the gems are coming from one of those is Myanmar where I've been working with a foundation a charity called Turquoise Mountain and there I visited the mines the gem mines and we work very specifically with one family owned mine um and we're happy with the sourcing of that. In Colombia, equally, um, buying emeralds from emerald panners. In Bolivia, where I work, I don't use gems at all because I don't know the origin of them. Um, it's a difficult one. It's in Afghanistan where we use a lot of gems at the moment, um, you know, as as situation has changed in, in the last year at all. It's, it's, again, it's put the kind of whole movement towards kind of clarification and um, sort of standardizing of the gem mines in Afghanistan has, has taken a pause for the time being, I would say. Um, but it's, it's a difficult one. It's very, very hard, other than the kind of ruby, emerald, sapphire, diamond story. All those other gems that we use are really difficult to know. But I, I do know in Myanmar that I'm happy with the source there. Colombia, I'm happy with the source there. But for the rest, it's it's very difficult. We haven't yet. I suppose, you know, it's it's sort of translate the value of the stone translates to the amount of investment in the, the source, the traceability, and, and for the many, many, many hundreds of different semi-precious materials, that hasn't yet happened, really. Jessica, you offer a bespoke service at Kimai. Tell me about yeah. more of bespoke um, I guess there's, you know, there's a sustainable element to that as well. But what does a bespoke process involve and what's the draw? Definitely. So I think for us in general, like everything was always almost bespoke made in a way where we didn't commit to any inventory. And whenever we got an order, we were making the piece for the customer. And the thinking behind it at first was um, no waste. So we only make whatever we sell. And on top of it, starting as a young brand, we couldn't afford uh, committing to inventory either. So that's basically how we started today. Of course, with scale, like the everyday pieces, we're able to kind of like know in a way which ones are going to perform better than others. And based on that, we order inventory. But 
Um, we basically launched engagement rings about a year and a half ago. And back to Antwerp again, I think that's definitely where the inspiration co comes from. In Antwerp, we there's a lot of like private jewelers where you kind of like grow up with them. Like as soon as you trust them, you, you go back for any kind of like jewelry purchase, you go back to them. They kind of like start to know you, your family, and they're your kind of trust trusted party. And which also means that at our youngest age, whenever we kind of like could, could start like getting jewelry, whenever, for example, when I turned 20, when I wanted a piece of jewelry for my birthday, I would design it and then go to the jeweler and make it happen. And it's often looked like something that is very out of reach. Cause again, back to those more traditional jewelers, um, you'll get that kind of service only if you'll spend a certain amount, but actually that that service and that process enables us again to offer more customization, a better service, and it doesn't actually come at a, a higher price point. So for us, whenever we launched engagement ring, it was kind of like a natural way to go about it because every engagement ring is unique. Every person wants their own and unique ring, and they also often want to be part of that design process. So we launched a couple of designs on the website that people can choose from and customize it to a certain extent. But on top of it, we offered the bespoke service where a customer can jump on a call with uh, our jewelers and we can kind of like guide them through the design process or some people have an exact design in mind and we'll basically like bring it to life with them with the Kimai touch. Um, so that's basically the thinking. It's really we're able to learn so much from a customer by doing that and also to offer them such a high-end and personalized service that they really value. Um, and it really makes the whole the whole piece even more special because um, they, they basically created it with us. Thank you. That's lovely. What a what a beautiful process to go through. And and I guess that takes it back to the jewelry being representative and life experiences and family and memories. And you know, it always always comes back to that really. Pepper, you received an MBE for ethical jewelry and charity work. So huge congratulations, firstly. Um and secondly, I talking about social activism and and all of your journey into where you are now, do you think your work in the jewellery space is a form of social activism. Well, that's interesting when I saw that. Um, I guess I don't, I wonder, would I say that? I mean, in a sense, I mean, if I'm sure, Jessica, you'd agree that the jewellery industry has been very male-dominated <laughs> for um, a long time and in many other parts of the world. Still, still is. Still is. <laughs> Um, it, and in many parts of the world, it is, you know, solely men. So I think it's been an interesting journey um, to see how, because words like ethical and sustainable, and they're all different and they all have very specific meanings. And it is, it is always a troublesome thing in, when talking about jewelry, because I mean, of course, by definition, the word sustainable, which means, um, you know, something is, is, can regrow as it were, it doesn't really apply because gems and gold will not regrow. They are finite. They will run out and that will be that. So in some senses, it's, it's always tricky, but I do use the word sustainable, um, for jobs and rightly or wrongly, I do and have increasingly become aware of the importance of having a job and a job for 
long term. So I suppose in areas like Afghanistan, like Myanmar, um, in many parts of Central South America where we work, um, or in Jordan with Turquoise Mountain also, where it's training young women, uh, mostly refugees from Syria, Palestine, Iraq, other places, and Jordanians, to, to have a livelihood. So training them with a skill um, and with um, an element of, of business knowledge and so forth, but to have a, a physical skill that means wherever, ideally, when they can go home, and in places like Afghanistan where people want to stay, they don't want to leave and have to make that terrifying journey out of their home. It means, you know, that if they can stay home and work and work in a creative job where they're safe, where they're working as a team, where they're being creative, um, I think this is really, really important. And I've now seen in Afghanistan, you know, people who started in the workshop as young boys who now have children of their own or young women who uh, who kind of came to learn jewelry making and found such a passion for it. And I've, I've never seen such kind of, when I say ambitious, I mean that in the best way, um, in the sense of just wanting to be the best jewelry designer in the world, wanting to be the best stone cutter, you know, just kind of full of this enthusiasm and this kind of youthful energy to to kind of take something that they're making and run with it and be successful and it, it's been such a beautiful thing to see this unfortunately been a little bit of a step back in Afghanistan but I think this area of of jewelry making being able to provide people with with jobs to bring in the element of um, a cultural element to bring in the fact that this traditional skill the sort of heritage element of where this craft is sourced from, it brings a kind of pride, which is really important in a lot of places right now. I think there's so many problems around the world, but to have pride in something from your culture or your country or your, your people is, is really important. It, it matters a lot. And I found it really interesting lately seeing, um, at the moment there's a project running in Afghanistan, with which is kind of providing women with... Um, jewelry skills, but also business and literacy and English. And and I was asking the friend who's running the project, like, what are the women enjoying the most? Is it, you know, perhaps business? It, it could be something that they find pretty exciting. And he said, no, it's the making. There is something, you know, the psychological level, again, I think quite a primal thing where the act of creating something is so hugely important. It gives a sense of achievement and and satisfaction that I think <laughs> so it, yeah it's just kind of looking at at really looking at this area of of creating and how that has such a huge role I mean I, I think also in this country increasingly I think COVID has shown us um, where we lack so much of our own ability to make things you know it's all been sourced out and I think here the young are looking into the the act of making and in craft in a new way, which I think is very exciting. But certainly, having seen um, you know refugees in, in from Syria, for example, saying that working in this workshop and learning to make jewelry is is the first time you know this woman said the first time she'd been happy and since the war started. Or another woman who I worked with in in Mombasa who. It was a wonderful project called Bambalulu, which was um, physically disabled people who were making wheelchairs out of 
scrap metal and found things but they also started making jewelry and just seeing a woman I was working with who had the use of one arm um, you know make a necklace and put it on and just beam saying I look so beautiful in this and it's just kind of I think there's something that links back to the role of jewelry that makes us feel beautiful but there's also something in the fact that making jewelry is such an important thing it's it's it creates a sort of sense of pride it reinforces identity it keeps traditional skills alive it's it's really so that's kind of one area and then you sort of take into the importance of clean sourcing where possible um and in this recent trip to colombia talking to these women gold panners and how you know politically articulate they were about uh the way they mine the gold versus the way illegal miners come in or large-scale mining comes in, takes out the gold, takes out everything and leaves a kind of mercury strewn, I mean, the illegal miners, you know, mercury poisoned area. They're aware of the fact that what they do, um, if one can, I won't say sustainable mining, but it's, they take a little bit, they take a little bit for their needs for that day. And they know that their grandchildren will be able to, to mine gold in the same river because they've only taken a bit and they're aware that they want that to last the generations and not have a huge mine come in and take all the gold and there'll be nothing left. So I, the kind of combining of small-scale uh, artisanal mining, craftsmanship, and clean sourcing, I think those three, when they, they link together, it's a wonderful thing. What's the most important lesson each of you have learned since launching your brands? Um, so much. <laughs> I think, I think as you said, Pippa, like it's a really a man-dominated industry, and often what we've seen is that that's also how those brands have been communicating with their customer. It's often been targeting men, uh, while women today are definitely have much more purchasing power and are definitely buying jewelry for themselves. So that's also why. For us, it's been so important to talk to our customers in the way we'd like brands to talk to us. And then in general, back to the topic of transparency, how tough it is to be a tr transparent in that market, how many closed doors uh, you come across and, and, and yeah, and how many, and, and most people don't really want to answer all the questions. Um, and it goes from everything, even in the lab-grown diamond space. Like we really focus on labs that we know that we can visit, because I think there's many middlemen that are starting to come in as well. Um, so yes, yeah, so I would say those. That's really more from an industry perspective, and then in general from a business perspective, it's yeah, hustle always, <laughs> never take no for an answer, and we just like need to figure out things on a daily basis and are learning new ways of doing things or new learning new things every day? Um, gosh, I would say, I would say there's, there's several things. One is, um, I think from a design point of view is to stay true to your vision, you know, to kind of, to find your voice in terms of design and, and sort of stay, true to what you believe in, what you find beautiful. Because I, I've had so many times where um, it's quite hard to keep that stand and not be swayed by trends or um, other people's visions or, you know, 
people coming and saying, this style is doing really well, you should do it. And you're like, ah, <laughs> there's a lot of noise. So it's quite hard to, um, to keep that kind of clear vision of what, what you feel is part of your identity. And I think that's important because uh, without that clear identity, it's easy to get lost. And then I suppose the other thing that I've learned and is really hugely important is um, the team, the team that make up the business. You know, if you're a business is made up, a brand is made up of people. It's not a, a non, uh, it's, a, it's a living thing as it were. It's a, an entity of people who are part of a team who help create something. And so I think it's just really important to have a wonderful team who share your vision um, and are sort of headed in the same way as you hope to, so that, you know, you're all in it together. That's very important. Is there one uh, nugget of advice, perhaps, or lesson that you'd like to share uh, for people who are shopping for jewelry pieces for themselves or others? Um, I think definitely, like, ask the question. I think that's one, as I said before as well, like, there's a big lack of education on that market in general, and people don't really know what they're buying into. When it says gold, they just like gold. They they'll just think there's one sort of it, sort of it, and same with diamonds. Like understand the quality of it. It's not just about the carat size. It's also about the quality of the stone. Um, and then in general, I would say I'm a big believer of like buying less, but buying quality that you'll be able to to carry over and wear for a lifetime. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think there's so much information available now. Um, that we can, you know, piece together the story by asking questions, how, why, where, who. Um, and then I suppose just in terms of, you know, falling in love with a piece, I agree to buy less and buy quality, definitely. But it's sometimes it's, you know, walking away from something and then just finding you can't get it out of your mind <laughs> and you're thinking about it and you're terrified someone else might buy it. And it's just kind of, you know, let it, let yourself sort of sit with it for a minute it's, it's a big it's a big decision to buy a piece of jewelry and you want to wear it every day you want it to be part of you and you want it to be that thing that you know people will identify with you the way I know I've done with other people so I think it's kind of falling in love with a piece of jewelry is really important and one final somewhat frivolous question if you could raid one person's jewelry box who would it be well, that one really threw me, that question, I have to say. Um, and then I decided the uh, Nizam of Hyderabad, because he had the most incredible collection of jewellery. Um, a lot of it's in the Althani collection in Paris now, but he had um, Golconda diamonds, he had natural pearls, he had the most beautiful rubies and emeralds. I mean, amazing, amazing collection of jewellery that... Um, there was something about seeing some of his diamonds that were, I don't know how to describe it. it, sort of, it felt like you could still feel the stone in the diamond. You know, it hadn't been transformed into something else. It was still this kind of rock that had been enhanced through a few facets and things, but in that old hand cut way. But I think he had a, a pretty incredible collection of jewelry. I love that. I can, I could just picture it. It must have been it's just sensational. Oh, wow. Jessica, what about you? Um, it's a tough one. <laughs> I would say, um, I think yeah. basically I'll go with, um, 
So Diane von Furstenberg, I've met her once and she basically started so she started to show me her jewelry collection and she traveled so much and like started taking out like some pieces from India with like old cut diamonds, very vintage look. Um, and I think people that have traveled the world and like that have that got jewelry from different places that really represent those different culture is something I value a lot. Um, so I would say her, but I think just in general, I would say like vintage pieces that have, that had that significance and that culture that comes with, I think is very, is, is very special. I love that. Thank you both. Um, I just think what you're creating is so beautiful, so wonderful. The story, the impact, everything that you're making and the message you're sending out there is really superb. So thank you so much um, for sharing all of this information with us. And where can we follow you on social media? Tell us where we can buy your wonderful creations. Uh, um, we're on Instagram or kimai.co and our website, we sell mostly D2C, so most, mostly online. It's on kimai.com. And on top of it, we're nowadays on uh, Netta Porter, Nordstrom and at Browns in the UK as well. Um, we are... Pippa Small Jewelry on Instagram and pippasmall.com. Um, and we have a shop on Westbourne Grove in London, uh, also on Netaporte. And yeah, be very delighted to meet if you come in the shop. <laughs> Super. Thank you both so much. I hope everyone enjoys listening to this. No doubt they will. Um, and enjoy your jewelry. <laughs> thank you thank you so much for having us thank you so much for listening please do like share and comment if you're enjoying our podcasts and don't forget to check into the last ones until next time <laughs>